I was serving at Christ United Methodist Church years ago and got a last-minute invitation to preach. Our senior pastor for weeks had been pushing this brand-new sermon series. It was going to be critical to the life of our church. You need to be here this Sunday because we're diving in to this important series for us in terms of our church's vision and mission. Be here this Sunday. And just a few days before that Sunday, he had an illness or a death in his family and said, I've got to go out of town. And so, Barry, if you'll preach this Sunday. And so I went up to preach that Sunday knowing everybody had come there ready for a sermon series. Now listen, at Christ Methodist Church with four or five associate pastors, you only get to preach maybe once a year at best, maybe once every two years at that point. So I got up and I said, you came expecting a sermon series. And so we're going to begin a sermon series on John 15 this morning. And then in a year and a half, we'll come back together, and we'll look at John 16. And then two years from there, and I actually carried that series out. I got four sermons in uh, before I left that church, and every time I bump into somebody from Christ Methodist, waiting on that fifth sermon, right? Waiting on, need to close that series. Well, we're starting a series today, and then we'll come back to it in a year and a half. And then we'll come back to it in two years. Uh, I've never thought of this before, but sometimes preachers get caught between lectionary or liturgical calendars. And so I've got one Sunday, and then we're going to be on to something else. So we're going to call this series Spotlight Series. We're going to spotlight somebody's life, Naaman as well as others, and and to see, to try to see God. Where is God in this? But then also... What's their response to God? What's our response to God to be? And then time to time, when preacher gets caught with one free Sunday, we'll come back to Spotlight, and we'll spotlight another biblical character, okay? So as we dive into this, 2 Kings 5, we need to get some background and to look at what's going on. When I say the word Naaman, part of the reason I wanted Ben to read that, though, was to have to hear him pronounce those two rivers. But uh, when I say the word Naaman... Have you heard that name before besides this passage? Do you remember where you've heard it before? Because you have. You don't have to turn there. We're going to go back to Luke in a minute. But Luke 4, when Jesus is in Nazareth, he picks up the scroll and he says, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the, in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent, except to Zarephath. See, I've got my word too. Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. Do you remember what happens after Jesus says this to them? They want to kill him. Hometown, and they want to kill him. Why? Well, certainly over what he's claiming about himself here, but could it be partly because it's a reminder to these people of Israel, right? These synagogue-going, scroll-reading folks that though they have the temple in Jerusalem, they also had famine and leprosy there. And though they have a synagogue here in Nazareth, there was a season of famine and leprosy here and God didn't do anything about it and yet out there God did for someone like Naaman and by the way who records that who is Luke 
the only Gentile author in the New Testament. And so we've got this Gentile relating this story that people outside of God's holy land are being healed, and yet there's famine and leprosy in the land. And Nazareth gets hot about that reminder. Again, it's about what Christ is really saying about himself, but I think this is part of it, and they seek to kill him. And then if you go to Luke 10, and we'll go there in a minute, when you go to Luke 10 and Jesus is speaking judgment, when he looks at those northern towns on the edge of the Holy Land that really are up in pagan country, he says about those places, Sidon and Tyre, it's better for them than Chorazin or Bethsaida. And then when he gets to Capernaum, now think about this, Capernaum, which is the home base for Jesus' Galilean ministry. Also got some relatives of, of some disciples at Capernaum. He says, ooh, Capernaum. Oh, he actually uses the word Hades there when he speaks to them. He basically is saying to them, you're going to Hades. This place, base of operations, this is what Jesus says in Luke 10. It's interesting sometimes how we, the church, can be tougher on people who don't know Jesus and we can be on ourselves. We just flip-flop what Luke is talking about. We can point our fingers, right? We can point our fingers at the world who don't, as the end of Jonah would say, I don't even know one hand from the other, and yet we won't turn that in on ourselves. We get it backwards. Luke notes that, and this is going to be part of Naaman's story. This one who's very respected, this one who's powerful, this one who's a commander, and Israel would still not be impressed with that because of where he's from and who he is. Impressed, and yet he asks for healing, and God heals. It's a reminder to us, y'all, of the great and reaching grace of God. Wherever we are, God is seeking, and God is reaching. So that's some background as we go into the story. So if you're following on in, along in your notes, there's some life lessons for us with several of the characters of this story. The first one is just a question coming through Naaman's life for us. A couple of questions. First is this. When we have a problem, and y'all, I've been in ministry for 25 plus years now, all of us have problems, okay? Lori has problems. I have problems. Ben have problems. Like I, a couple of y'all have written on the, you have real big problems. We all have stuff. And so when stuff and struggle and problems happen, what do you do? I want a big solution. Or do I want a big God? Right? And that can be a temptation. Give me something flashy. Give me something elaborate. Give me something big. And the solution here is, well, this unclean river, and it is, it's more of a creek, or where I grew up in Pennsylvania, it's a creek. That insignificant-looking place, I just want you to go down there seven, or dip yourself seven times. There's something to be said. Uh, in that culture, especially in pagan culture, give me something elaborate. You, know, you remember stories just previously of, 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 of folks even cutting themselves, doing all kinds of wild things to try to rouse the gods. And so you've got Naaman expecting that kind of spectacle, some kind of big solution for God to act. Um, we just expect something elaborate. Case in point, and you've heard this before, but it's worth sharing. 
How many Methodists does it take to screw in a light bulb? Do you remember this? I, I, love, the, I love these reminders. Um, one, one answer would be this. It's, it's undetermined. Uh, whether your light is bright, dull, or completely out, you are loved. And you can be a light bulb, a turnip bulb, a tulip bulb, a church-wide lighting service is planned for next Sunday. You bring your bulb of choice to the covered dish, right? Or I love this other one. How many Methodists does it take? We neither, we neither affirm nor reject the use of a light bulb. If you have found a light bulb helpful in your journey, that's good. If one would wish, they could submit an original poem or an interpretive dance about your light bulb or your light source or non-dark resource for the annual light bulb celebration, where a variety of light bulb traditions will be explored, including long life, incandescent, three-way, and tinted, all of which are valid paths of luminescence, right? We can be politically correct like that. My favorite one, though, is this. How many Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? Whoa, 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 whoa. Change the light bulb? My grandmother donated that light bulb. You can't change. We can do that. Here's my absolute favorite one, though. How many Baptists does it take? I'm not going to share it, but it's really good. But anyway, um, my friend, my two Southern Baptists, really good friends of mine. They, but I won't share that. Right? Some elaborate big answer, some big solution. That's what I want. Wave your arms. Call out to the name of God for me. He's seeking a big solution, and he's actually upset. Scripture says he's enraged about this response. Go down a little creek and do that. Wave your arms. So beautiful. Uh, as Chris said, how beautiful his name is this morning. Uh, how beautiful Jesus responds to most of the healings. Yeah, there's some spit and mud one time, right? But it's mostly just get up. Just get up and take your pallet. It's nothing elaborate. The authority's in me. It's not in the stuff. The grace and the power's in me. It's not in this stuff. It's just simple faith, simple trust in the person of God. And again, going back to Luke 10, it'd be a great passage to go through. There's a lot of truth there for us this morning. Go, in 1019, as Jesus is speaking with them, he talks about all these snakes and scorpions and all these signs, right? Demons. I was on a mission trip. My, I've only been to Honduras one time with our church in McGee where I was serving. And um, literally, the first night, there was a snake. The next night, we were sleeping in a, it was a covered, like a court. So we were actually sleeping outside exposed, but we had a roof. The first night, there was a snake. The, the next night, there was a bat. And then the next night, there was a scorpion. You know, so like by night four, we're, you know, is the river going to be filled with blood? Is the rapture of the church going to happen? Every night. This kind of progression, Jesus talks about in Luke 10. He talks about snakes, and he talks about scorpions. And then you get to the end of that, even these evil spirits that he talks about and he gets to the end thing and he says here's why you rejoice all those things are going to submit why do you rejoice though it's not in that big stuff why do you rejoice luke 10 20 go back to it sometime your name your name's written in heaven that's why you rejoice not that big flashy stuff as wild as that is and as powerful as it shows god God has written your name. If you've bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, your name is written in heaven. As our choir beautifully reminded, 
us this morning. He's written his name on our hearts, his signature, right? And just glory in that. That's enough. That kind of simple assurance. I don't need the waving of the arms. I don't need anything wild and flashy or the hottest new thing. Just give me Jesus and a simple faith walk with him. We like the big stuff, though. I'm tempted for the big solution, the big program, the big whatever. He looks at the Jordan River, and the Jordan River looks insignificant. Y'all, wherever God is, is significant. Wherever God is, is significant. May not look that way, may not appear that way in a world of credible advertising and social media. Look at this big picture. Wherever God is, that's the only place where we want to be. Give me that simple trust, simple obedience. And so Naaman tries to make it bigger than that, and he almost misses out on grace. Um, Second life lesson from Naaman 2 is, I love the fact that Elijah here, who's a prophet of God and who knows Naaman's what's going on in his life. Naaman doesn't have it all together. But here he's turning to the God of Israel, and he's asking for a blessing. And Elijah is a prophet who certainly has no problem pointing out, as Elijah did too, pointing out the sins of people. He gives them, he cuts them some grace. Uh, it could have been easy for them in 2 Kings 5 to have, to have misinterpreted that. And, 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 and the king does. The king of Israel does. He thinks it's... I was... Uh, I was blessed to help start a jail ministry when I was in McGee with a good friend, two good friends of mine. And what we would do is we'd rotate. So one week, one of us would preach, and then the other one would bring a guitar and, and lead the worship, and vice versa. I had only been once, or maybe this was my second service. So as I was going in, I was running late, coming from a meeting. And they're very careful and detailed about how you go into the jail. So you have to check in and give them your keys and your wallet. I was running late, so as I'm running by the chapel and going in to turn in my keys and my wallet and my phone, Brad, my friend, says, get in here. we got to get started. So I didn't go sign in. And so I walked into that service with my wallet and my keys, threw down my guitar, was opening my guitar to get the song sheets out, and Texas, who ended up becoming a, a, a great friend and a believer in Christ, Texas was behind me, one of the guys in the jail, and he comes up right behind me and he says, give me the key. And I'm thinking, what do I do here? This is my fault. And the chapel's parked right by the exit, and they have those doors open for us. And so if I give this guy my keys, he's going to be in my car. There's only two or three cars, and he's gone. It's going to be on me. What do I do? He said, hey, give me the key. I'm like, do I, do I just grab his legs? What do I do? He says, Barry. Actually, he's from the south. He said, Barry. <laughs> he said, Barry. Give me the song sheet. Give me the key so I know what we're singing it in. <laughs> Dude, I almost tackled this guy, right? Almost started a, a jail riot because I misinterpreted what he said. And that's what we can do. We can be defensive. This is somebody different. They're not talking my church language. And so he's asking for this, this miracle. How can he expect this of me? This is an act of war. And, and there's this grace from Elijah for people on the outside, people who are struggling, maybe people who aren't as versed Oh, just, just bless. Give, give him grace. It's a great word for the church. To be full of truth, we're going to talk about that in a minute, but also to be full 
of grace. I want to look at a couple other heroes from this passage. We think of Naaman being bold enough to ask somebody else to help, which is hard for us to do. Maybe there's a word, another sermon someday in that. Also, this wonderful word of Elijah to cut some grace from somebody who's on the outside. But you know none of this happens without two other people if you're following along in your notes. First verse 3, it's a slave girl. None of this happens without her. This is a girl who's been taken from the promised land, taken from a, a place where God has said, this is your place, and then taken away from family and from faith into a place that doesn't worship like she does. And what does she say? You're sick. As far as I'm concerned, you can stay sick. No. Look at the grace in her life in verse 3. This girl stolen from Israel, a nobody. This is the person who should have been enraged. Let his skin burn. Let him die with this stuff. I mean, that's what you get from Jonah. Again, God's people ought to know better. I don't want to go to Nineveh. I know what the kind of stuff they do. Or James and John. Samaria, you're going you're gonna to abandon Jesus when he set his face to go to Jerusalem and die for all who would see him? Hey, Jesus, you want to call out fire on these people? And yet this little, this slave girl gives grace. It's a great reminder to us. She's the one who tells of Elijah so that this outsider named Naaman might get healed. How well do we love our enemies? How well do we pray for our enemies? How well, church, are we giving grace? And you're going to see it here and then also in Naaman's servants, the next ones. How, how hard is it to have the courage to speak a word like that to somebody who's over you that doesn't get it? How hard is it to share a word with a, a family member who just thinks you're dumb for your faith? Or a coworker who's sarcastic or cynical? It's hard to speak up and hear somebody in authority over them, and yet it's because of Naaman's sermons. Don't walk away in rage. Just do what he says. And because of that encouragement to a person of power, to a person who's over them, a person who can do anything he wants to them, of stepping out in, in, in a courageous and bold way, he gets healed. Not just physically healed, you're going to see in his life, even though he doesn't have it, he doesn't necessarily have it all together. He tries to buy his healing, tries to throw money at that. The verses we read didn't get to read this morning. He even says, let me take some dirt back, this idea, I'll throw down dirt and I'm always going to worship on holy land dirt, even though I'm up there worshiping in those, those foreign places. He didn't get it all. But it's grace because a slave girl and some servants will boldly share truth. I read this recently. As we think about those two positions, slave girl and Naaman's servant, being weak and inadequate, which these people were and that river was, being weak and inadequate is not an excuse for avoiding the Great Commission. It is virtually a prerequisite for being a part of it. God uses little heroes. And then this last one, I know we've only got a few minutes left, but this, this last person who ought to know better, uh, what does he do? I'm not letting this guy get away. 
He brought all that money into the Holy Land. At least let's go and get some of it. And as you read this story, you might think, well, maybe he, like Phineas and others, are jealous for God. And so we're going to at least take something. But, but you really can't interpret it that way because he goes and hides it, and then he goes and he lies to, uh, to Elisha. Um, and here's the sad truth, y'all. He receives Naaman's disease. This is kind of like our Proverbs series lived out. <laughs> this world looks like if I just grab it, it's going to give me life. And it does not. This temptation looks like it's going to bring me satisfaction, and I grab it, and in the end, it kills me. And this is the horror of consequences. Don't miss this. God can forgive anything. God's grace is always reaching but the consequences of sin can be devastating. And there are times he does not remove those. And you see that here. It's not just him, but it's also his descendants. Steve Farr, in his book, Finishing Strong, says, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you are willing to pay. That's the hard truth here. It's the hard truth for Achan and Joshua. It's the hard truth for Ananias and Sapphira and throughout Scripture. It's why we guard our hearts. It's why, as Galatians 1 says, Brothers, if someone's caught in sin, you should restore him gently, but watch yourselves or you may be tempted. Oh, how critical it is, church, for us to guard our eyes and to guard our hearts that one moment of getting carried away. And maybe, maybe it was a season of attitude that led him finally to act in that way. Maybe it's not just in the heat of one moment. This has been in his heart all along. My Bible says it's about 780 grand that he takes. Now your, your Bible may say something different. There's a lot of money put in his house this one moment. Thinking again, maybe it's jealousy for the Lord and deluding himself in that but the consequences are huge. To anybody in this room this morning who might be a Naaman, okay? People maybe have counted you on the outside, on the outs, or maybe you're looking for something big, something flashy for God to do. It's just simple trust. It's just simply trusting the Lord and obeying whatever He says. Uh, to anybody in this room who, who's like an Elijah, Oh, what a great gift it is to give somebody some grace. How is it this, this week? How was it last week or the week before? You were intentionally building a relationship with somebody who doesn't know Jesus, and you were giving them grace, looking for an opportunity to step in and say, oh, no, no, you've, mis you've misread this. What if this guy heard about God? What if this woman heard about God? How is it you need to be an Elisha? Or like these, these servants, uh, bold enough to step up and say a word carefully as scripture says gently and reverently but to a family member who needs to hear it or a friend or a co-worker are we bold enough about our faith to live it and by living it earning the right when it's right to speak it but then also this past week where, where have you been tempted whether it's bitterness or a gimme attitude? How is it you and I need to better guard our hearts? There's forgiveness for sins, but the consequences here and usually are very real. How is it we need to respond to this, his word?
whatever our response, it's going to be the Spirit of God who helps us do that. It's Hymn 500, Spirit of God, descend upon our hearts. Let's stand together as we respond and as we sing.